the National Archives podcast series, The First World War and the Community, Putting It All Together, How to Use Archives to Piece Together Your Community's Involvement in the First World War, presented by Audrey Collins. This talk was recorded live on the 8th of November 2014 at the National Archives Q. If you're interested in Chesham, which is where all the case studies are, this will be very interesting to you. But even if you're not remotely interested in Chesham, I hope that quite a lot of the examples and the ideas will be of interest to you if you're looking at any kind of local or community history project, either on your own or in collaboration with other people. Now, when I first wrote this talk, the original subtitle was The War Memorial and Beyond, because this is where the research starts. I know from experience from the day job, when I'm sitting outside on the inquiry desks, we have lots of people coming in to research people who served or who died in the First World War. A lot of these people are researching members of their own family, but there are lots of people who are looking at a whole community. And in many cases, they are specifically trying to research all the names on the war memorial in their town or village or sometimes um, a workplace or some other place that has a war memorial. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And this is a terrific thing to do. I like people uh, searching records and putting them in context. Just name collecting or looking at people only from one family is all right as far as it goes, but it makes so much more sense if you put it in context. So I'm always thrilled when people are trying to look at a community as a whole, even if they're mainly interested in their one family. It's nice to see who they associated with and the background that they came from. So the War Memorial is the starting place. War Memorials, they do vary a bit. The one in Chesham, I think, is a particularly nice one. It's very well situated. It is right in the centre of the town. So you can't miss it. You see it every day as, you, as you're doing your shopping. Um, and it's also quite a nice memorial in itself. I, I took a photograph of it from the, the vantage point of the upstairs room in Café Nero. It's a particularly good uh, view you get from there. I took the picture about, uh, about four years ago, I think. Since then, the, the memorial has been, uh, has been cleaned up. It really looks lovely. It also now has some wonderful little uh, knitted or crocheted poppies all the way around the little chain link fence on it. Um, so it, it, it's looking particularly good. And of course, tomorrow uh, there will be the Remembrance Day service there as usual. Now, the first thing that might occur to you is, why Chesham? Well, the short answer is, because I live there. <laughs> I've got no family connection, no previous connection with Chesham uh, before the day when I moved there, which was just about 12 years ago, just before I started the job here. But apart from the fact that it's where I live, and it's a very nice place to live, I'm pleased to say, it's a very suitable subject for looking at a community history. For one thing, it's changed in the last hundred years. Obviously it has. But there's a lot of continuity as well. If you look at the names on the war memorial and then take a walk up and down the high street, you'll see a lot of those names. In fact, today, if you were to take a picture of the war memorial from a particular angle, you would see a shop behind you, Summerlin Carpets. Well, there are, I think, four Summerlins on the war memorial. Slightly different spelling, but the same name. 
you walk further down the high street, you'll, you'll see the name Lacey appears a lot on the War Memorial. There is one of the little narrow alleyways, Lacey's Yard. Right next to Lacey's Yard is a shop called Cox the Saddler. Directly opposite Cox the Saddler is Darvel's the Baker's. Both those uh, shops are where they were 100 years ago. And in the case of the, the, the Cox and the Darvel families, both of those families sent sons to war. The, the two Cox brothers came back. Uh, the Darvels lost one, possibly two. I can't quite remember. Um, so Cheshire's history is all around you. Those are just a couple of examples. The other thing about Chesham is because we're in the countryside, even though Chesham has grown a lot, it's sprawled outwards like most places have, but it's still recognisably the same place. Even though it's bigger, you can't leave or enter Chesham with, from any direction, by any means of transport, without going through open countryside. So although you might not know precisely where the boundary is, you know when you've left Chesham. It doesn't sprawl into um, the next town in the way that a lot of places closer to London and large cities have. They may have been a village once upon a time, but now they've all joined up, so you can't see where the, what the heart of the place used to be. Chesham is still very recognisably Chesham. If some of the poor young men whose names are on that memorial were to come back today and walk up and down the high street, they would recognise quite a lot of it. Some of the buildings have gone, um, the, uh, and some of them have been um, altered, but the streets are still mostly recognisably the same. With very few exceptions, all the streets that were in Chesham 100 years ago are still there. And for the most part, as far as I can tell, the house numbering hasn't changed. That's always something to be careful of um, when you're looking at historical records. Uh, you can easily research what you think is your house and it's not because the numberings change. So, but there's a lot of continuity in Chesham. So that makes it a very nice place to research. It's also just about the right size. Uh, I, I w Chesham is a good place to do because I live there. It's about the nice size. If I chose places that I had previously lived in, like Gillingham, which sprawls into the rest of the Medway towns, it's a really interesting place historically, especially to do with the military, but it's a bit too big. And don't even think about my birthplace, which is Glasgow. <laughs> so Chesham is a nice size, and it has a very recognisable identity. So it's been, a, it's been very interesting to do this. Now, I am not going to say that I have done a lot of research. Here it is, isn't it wonderful? Because most of the research, on the, uh, particularly on the people from Chesham who died, been done by other people. So uh, I have been working on the basis of what a lot of other people have done, a lot of other people's very hard work, but I hope I've been being able to take it a bit further. And what I'm working on is very much a work in progress. You start with the War Memorial, and this lists the people who died. There are 180 or so names on the War Memorial, but I always think, what about the men who served and who came back, it's not so easy. There isn't an automatic list of them. But I'm sure I can find out a lot about them. And I have been able to do that. Again, some of it on the, the back of uh, other people's research, which I will show you uh, as I go through it. 
I'm putting all the information I get into a database, and I am listing, first of all, people who served in the army. Then I have a, a separate page for people who were in uh, the, the Navy and the Marines and similar services. Then the Royal Flying Corps, Royal Air Force, Royal Naval Air Service. And I have a, a page which I'm currently calling Other, which is people, so far, mainly people who served in Canadian or the Australian forces. That's a, a fairly miscellaneous page, and I will add things to it simply that don't fit into the other ones. So far on that, the, these databases combined, I've got something like 1,700 names. The total will go up and down as I carry on researching. And when I have got it to a reasonable stage, I will not say finished because these things never are finished. There's always something you can do. But when I get it into what I consider at least a reasonable working copy, I'm going to donate that to Cheshire Museum. Now I've said this in public and it's being recorded for podcast, I will have to deliver. Especially as I have said it in front of a museum volunteer. <coughs> So I'm working my way through it. I've got a very rough database, and I'm going through the, the first stage of neatening it up and trying to eliminate duplicates and add in new things, and I'm up to about surnames starting with H. So it'll be a while, but I am getting there. <coughs> this is the, the website of Chesham Museum, which is... The premises are a modest size, but it's a little treasure... There is nothing quite like a local museum for local knowledge. Uh, these sort of museums, they're usually run by volunteers, and you will find pieces of information in there that you simply will not get anywhere else. It won't be online. It might be in the form of records which aren't even deposited in a record office anywhere. There are a lot of things in the Cheshire Museum um, the, what, they have a current display on uh, the, the First World War. They're, they're updating them. Uh, I think we're on to about the third incarnation of it, of extracts from Chesham's history during that period. And a lot of that information comes from private collections. So anywhere that you're interested in that has got a museum, that would be lovely. But there are a lot of places where there may not be premises but there may well be a local history society or a family history society who've done a tremendous amount of research. And that can take a little bit of seeking out, but it's very well worth um, taking the trouble to try and find out what somebody already knows about a particular area. And, of course, there are reminiscences. If you are interested in Chesham, or even if you're interested in looking at the, the sort of thing that a local interest group can do, um, I'd recommend having a look at the website. Um, there's a, a gallery of the, the pictures from the collection, and there's a very interesting section with memories and reminiscences from people. So it's, it's a very interesting site to look at, even if you're not interested in that particular place. Now, I said we started with the War Memorial, and that's absolutely the right place to start, because that's where all the, the, the men who fell uh, are listed. Now, war memorials do come in lots of different shapes and sizes. They're not all in a common format. The Chesham one is fairly typical, so far as I can tell, but they have a lovely egalitarian approach that you just have names, usually an initial and a surname. That's lovely. All lives are of equal value, regardless of rank. 
does make it a little tricky when you're researching. Uh, it would be quite nice sometimes to have a clue about what arm of the services somebody was in, what their full name was, maybe what their rank was. Uh, but you may be able to find that from somewhere else. The Cheshire War Memorial is in the centre of the town, but it's not the only one. There is um, another uh, memorial inside the church, which I, I will come to shortly. The names of the dead on the War Memorial is a good place to start. When you're researching anyone in the First World War, particularly a soldier, you will find that the people who died are better recorded than the people who survived. So they are mostly easier to research. On the whole, they're not always easier to research. I'm saying this to ward off any howls of protest from people who've been trying to identify all the names on a war memorial. And despite your best efforts and strokes of luck, you will often end up with a couple of names or more that you simply cannot identify because you can't find anybody in the town who seems to match that name or you've found two or three and there is no way of telling which it is. But we live in hope and it is quite possible that enough information will be found from a variety of sources that one day we will be able to uh, identify them. But the place to start for ca war casualties is always going to be the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website. This records everyone who fell in the First and Second World Wars, although obviously it's the First World War I'm concentrating on here. If you've been researching for a while, you may well have used the Commonwealth War Graves website. If you haven't used it for a while, I'd strongly recommend that you go back and have a look. Um, it's being added to in terms of features and functionality. Um, and if you last looked at it a couple of years ago, you will find extra information on there. For example, they now show the, the printed books from the original Imperial War Graves Commission from which the online entries are taken and the, the, the grave registers as well. So you, you can actually see the information that it's taken from. And although it's pretty accurate, at least when you can check the original printed source, which you now can on the site, if there is a tiny spelling mistake or a small mistranscription, you will be able to um, see that. You can also now search it by place. So I did the, the, the easy thing by putting in Chesham as a place name search, and I picked up a few entries that I hadn't previously seen elsewhere. Chesham's quite a good place to do that with because there isn't, well, there is more than one Chesham. There is a, a much smaller Chesham in Lancashire. There's a Chesham Street in London, uh, and I think I found another Chesham Street somewhere else. It's also a surname, but it's not a very common one. So on the whole, if you're searching for Chesham, even if it's not a, a place-specific search engine, most of the results that you will find will relate to this Chesham. Now, you're not always going to be that lucky with every place name, but um, Chesham is quite nice in that regard. So I picked up a few extra entries from the, the Wargrave site that I hadn't found before and I wouldn't have been able to find a year or so ago. Another place to look is this site, which is um, called Roll of Honour. And this has links to information about and transcriptions, lots of other material, about war memorials throughout the whole country. Now, you won't necessarily find information about every single war memorial, but it's worth having a look because if the one that you're interested in 
is on there, you will find that some of the research has already been done for you. Fortunately, Chesham is just such a one. And the research that's on here um, is pretty good. It's mainly uh, taken from Commonwealth war graves and similar sources. But there will be some names that will say no further information currently. But there may be information available now if you start looking. And certainly I have found and other people have found information if you've got local knowledge and if you're specifically looking for somebody and you can really take the time and you know your community, you can often make an, uh, an educated guess as to who somebody might be and then try that out, look in a few other sources and see if you can confirm it. That's what research is all about a lot of the time, is coming up with a reasonable guess, but not assuming you're right until you've found a bit more evidence to support it. Now, one of the uh, ways that you can supplement this information, quite apart from records that have gone online, is um, if you look at other material that people have already done. Now, in the case of Buckinghamshire, there is a wonderful, wonderful resource. This website is called Buckinghamshire Remembers. And this um, is re the results of the labours, principally of um, a couple called June and Peter Underwood, who have done the most tremendous job. They have photographed most, if not all, of the war memorials in Buckinghamshire and researched, with, with the help of other people, but it's their creation. They have researched a lot of the names of the people who died. And if you go into that website and you, you, you search um, by name, you will find a lot of information. Sometimes there is even a photograph, usually from a local newspaper, sometimes donated uh, by a family member or someone who has local knowledge. So that is an absolutely brilliant site. The Roll of Honour website that I started with that does have links on its various county pages to this sort of thing. So if you're researching somewhere that isn't in Buckinghamshire, you may find a link to a similar useful site on the relevant county page. You probably won't find everything because there will be wonderful resources hidden away that nobody on the site has found and linked to, but it's a really good place to start. Now, the main part of this is the um, memorials to the fallen but there is another important bit of the website which I will come back to later because it covers a slightly different uh, area of research the town centre war memorial being the nice egalitarian one it just has an initial and a last name a lot of those names are also on the memorial which is inside the parish church in Chesham and this is a rather beautiful thing, and it gives a bit of extra information. It tells you which arm of the services somebody was in. Mostly it's army. By sheer weight of numbers, it's mostly going to be army. But there are a few um, that were in other forces. And the army ones, they tell you which regiment they were in, or which, which corps. Um, a lot of them were in, as you'd expect, in the local regiment, the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry, but uh, Cheshire men were represented in all kinds of regiments, various other uh, regional uh, regiments, they were, uh, and others were in the, the non-regional corps, like 
the Royal Engineers, the Army Service Corps, the Veterinary Corps. So they were all over the place. A lot of them were in the local regiments, but many were in others, and there are some who were in the RAF. And also, this is where the sort of place where you might just get a clue that somebody wasn't in the British Army at all. They might be in the um, Canadian Expeditionary Force or the, the Australian Army, because... The period not long before the First World War was a great period for migration. So a lot of people in the UK had relatives who had emigrated within the last 10 or 20 years and that they were still in contact with. And certainly a lot of the young men who joined the Canadian or the Australian or New Zealand forces, they might have been born in this country. And there certainly were Cheshire men um, who served in those armies. The, uh, the Canadian records in particular are indexed and digitised free on the site of Libraries and Archives Canada. They've had the attestation forms, which you can search by birthplace. That's very nice, but within the last few weeks, they have started adding the full service records. They've only got surnames starting with A and B at the moment, but they're working their way through, and they're putting them on in, in tranches every few weeks, they've promised. I was quite fortunate because I happened to be looking for somebody whose name was John Berry, so I found his full record, about 50-something pages. So there may well be men on the Cheshire War Memorial or on your local memorial who actually fought in one of those other forces. They will still be on the Commonwealth War graves, but you might not have any idea that they came from Chesham unless you'd seen them on a war memorial or perhaps read about them in some other source. So that's a really useful thing. Some of the other war memorials that uh, the Underwoods have photographed are war memorials within other churches, scout huts, places of work. And they're all different. The war memorials was the way people commemorated their, their, the dead from the First World War. It was very much bottom-up, not top-down. Each place decided who they were going to put on their memorial, and why. We can't always figure out quite how they came to those decisions, uh, although you can sometimes make an educated guess. And that's why I think Downton Abbey is sometimes just a little bit educational, because in the current series there is a tiny little subplot where they are discussing where to put the war memorial and who gets to go on it and who doesn't. So that's quite an interesting, and as far as I can tell, a reasonably accurate portrayal of the sort of discussions that would have gone on in towns and cities up and down the UK uh, in the 1920s when they were putting these things up. So a lot of people will appear on more than one memorial. Some of the other memorials I've looked at very helpfully give you somebody's full name, which you don't get on the main war memorial. So uh, you may find somebody on two or three different memorials and pick bits of information from all of them um, to arrive at the dis decision about exactly which person of that initial and surname somebody is. So uh, it really does pay to have a good look around all these different records. Now you'd come to actually researching the people, not just the men who died, that you have got maybe some minimal information for, about, but also the people who survived. And to do that, you're really going to be looking at the service records where you possibly can. Service records for all the armed forces, where the records survive, are almost always going to be held here at the National Archives. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, 
we are the place to start. We have a page on our website called Looking for a Person, which is always a good place to start when you're researching people. We've got similar pages about researching a sub looking for a subject and looking for a place, uh, which are also worth looking at when you're doing a really rounded piece of research. This is a good place to start, although uh, it's not the, the only uh, place to start looking. But I'm showing you this one because you see the range of record guides that we have there. We have a lot about the armed forces. The screenshot that I'm showing you is only the top part of it. There's a lot more than that, but it gives you the, 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 the sort of idea. There's a lot about the army and the, and the other services, but we also have records about some uh, people who worked in other um, areas of life, and uh, including civil servants who are not terrifically well recorded, I have to say, but people like Coast Guard's customs officers, dockyard employees. There are all sorts of people who may have performed some kind of war service, which was vital, but not in the armed forces. They are going to be a bit trickier to find out and identify unless you've got some clue to start with. But uh, it's worth bearing in mind that there were lots of people who were um, not allowed to join the, arm, the armed forces or who weren't fit to for some reason or another, but who would do, do their bit for the war effort by working in some other area. Um, and a lot of those are not obvious First World War sources. That's why I showed you that page. But what we've created on our website is a whole portal, First World War 100. And this links together lots of elements from the website, all to do with the First World War and to help you concentrate your researches. Uh, it's quite a, a big page. The real, one of the real highlights is the unit war diaries. If you know which un fighting unit somebody was in, in the, in the case of a, a regiment, that would be the battalion, if it's the, the Royal Artillery, it's a battery and so on. It's not always very easy for people who are in things like the, the Veterinary Corps and the Medical Corps and the uh, Army Service Corps, but for people who were in fighting units, with a bit of luck you can identify the war diary and they make absolutely fascinating and sometimes quite harrowing reading. We have as far as possible been digitising those we, we can't do all of them, but we're doing a lot, particularly France and Flanders Theatre of War. We also have an amazing project called Operation War Diary, uh, where we're encouraging people to sign up and to help tag them, not to index them as such, but to tag them, because the pages are very non-standard. And the idea is that if you sign up, you'll be given a page to look at, you identify what kind of page it is, and then um, if there are names on there, you can flag those up, type them in. It's absolutely wonderful project. A lot of people have signed up to that. Uh, and um, if, if, you are, if you've got time on your hands and you like doing that sort of thing, please do have a look at that. We used to say that you don't get personal names in there other than officers. That's still largely the case, but we have found that there are more names of other ranks in there than we had previously thought. So it's well worth looking. You never know. You might find something amazing. Uh, we also have links to our various online collections. And these are records that we have digitized and are available on our website. And these cover a lot of the services. What they do not cover is the army. The, the army records, um, there, are, there were far too many of those for us to do in-house. So those were licensed to Ancestry to do. But we get money back from Ancestry. So... Um, 
if you're searching the records on Ancestry, we get a cut of that, so that's a good thing. But the, the, we have got various other records to do with most of the other services. And that's a, a quick link to them on there. Uh, we also have an events calendar about uh, things that are going on here over the next uh, five years, covering the whole of the war period and then the, the beginning of peace and reconstruction. And we have links to a number of podcasts that we have. This talk will be added to it in due course and a lot of blog posts about First World War related subjects. So that's a nice uh, portal to get you into the main sources that we've got uh, for the, um, the First World War research. You won't find absolutely everything through that but we've put together uh, some of the most significant things so you'll find that helpful. Now when you're researching the chances are you're going to be researching somebody in the army because by sheer weight of numbers, that's where most people were. When you're searching for soldier service records, the good news is that they're online and they're really detailed. The bad news is that you have about a one in three chance of finding anything because unfortunately, the other two thirds of the records were destroyed by enemy action during the Second World War. So even if you're the best searcher in the world and you're doing it all right and you're really savvy with the search engines on websites, the chances are you won't find the thing that you're looking for because you have a one in three chance. This is the nice thing about doing a community project though. If you're only interested in a very specific person because he was your grandfather and his service record doesn't survive, nothing is going to make that magically appear. But if you're researching a whole group of people, a whole community or a workplace, you will find some of them. You might not find the ones that you most want to find, but at least you will get a result of sorts. So that's a good thing. Um, as I mentioned, these um, are on Ancestry, and you can search them by name. You can search by birthplace as well, uh, and various other searches. They have quite a sophisticated search engine. And when you're searching on any online service, always have a good look to see what the search engine can do. Try silly searches just to see if they work. You don't have to put a name in at all. You can just put in a place. And you can find um, quite a lot that you hadn't previously thought of, people that you didn't know about. They're not on the war memorial because they didn't die. And they may be people with no descendants, so there might not be anybody who's researching them. So I picked up quite a lot of people purely by looking by place to find if there were any soldiers' service records. And, of course, if you do find them, it supplements the information you've already got for the soldiers who died um, or information that you've got from elsewhere. Incidentally, I should have said that not only do the war memorials come in different shapes and sizes as to the amount of detail, while most of them record only the people who died, there are some where everybody is recorded. So it's worth um, seeking those out just in case, um, I know one of my colleagues who comes from Gloucestershire, um, her, her home village, they have a memorial that lists absolutely everybody. So that's a particularly good one. The soldier service records, if you do find them, as I said, can be very, very detailed. They often run to a couple of dozen pages. Now, some of the pages are pretty much the back of an envelope or something that's got practically nothing written on it. But you do get, in many <coughs> cases, quite a lot of information. You will usually get their attestation form, which gives you basic information about their name, their age in years and months, rather than their date of birth, although obviously a lot of them lied. I'm sure you know that. So treat the ages with a bit of caution. And their 
usually you will get a bit of detail about their family, their next of kin, uh, whether it's their parents or if they're married, it could be a wife. Um, the best ones are where somebody joins up as a single man and his father is the next of kin and then his father dies and he's crossed out and you get the mother as next of kin and then the man marries and the mother's crossed out but still legible and you've got the wife's name so sometimes you can get a whole lot of names on one record for the men who died sometimes you will get a whole form which is entirely to do with next of kin and I have seen some where you've got maybe a dozen or so names the names of both parents and the names of all the brothers and sisters and their addresses. You don't find very many of those, but if you're doing a whole community project, you will find some. And of course, some of the brothers may well be um, in the army as well. And if you're interested in a particular individual and his service record doesn't survive, you might just find him mentioned in his brother's record. You never know. Uh, they, there's an enormous variation. You will usually also get a, a, a a brief outline of his service, roughly where he was. It won't give you chapter and verse that you get in a war diary, but it will give you the dates of you know, home, France, Middle East, India, whatever, and then home again. And also incidental details. Sometimes you get a medical history in there. Sometimes you get the page that records um, instances of when they appeared in the regimental defaulters book, which is usually drunk and disorderly, back a bit late from leave losing a bit of kit, that sort of thing. Um, quite interesting. One of the records I have here is uh, from uh, one of the families I've already mentioned, Cox the Saddler. One of their sons not only served in the war, he was promoted from the ranks. Um, that didn't happen very often as a rule, but in the First World War, quite a number of people were promoted from the ranks. I was looking at a war diary relating to someone who's mentioned on our own war memorial downstairs. We, we have two memorials downstairs, and the one for the Her Majesty's Stationery Office. One of the men in there, he was an officer, I think promoted from the ranks, and I was looking at the war diary for the date when he died, and it described what was going on, and it was absolutely horrible. They were losing lots and lots of men, being wounded, men were missing, and at one point it says there were no officers left. Every single one of the officers in that particular battalion had been killed. So that gives you an idea of why it was that people did get promoted from the ranks because there was literally nobody else to take charge. So um, that is why if you're looking at this, that record is plainly a piece of genuine actual paper and not a black and white image from a microfilm. We never had the originals of the um, soldiers' records because they were so badly damaged. We only ever got to see them as film. But the officers' records, which mostly survived, they don't all, that's a, a they give the same sort of details that you will get on the uh, soldiers' records in, in many cases. And there might be correspondence in there. But the, this is uh, one of the, the, the Cox family. This is, what is your address? 23 High Street, what is your father's occupation? Sadler. And Cox the Sadler is still there. Um, it's not run by members of the family anymore, but the Darvels directly opposite, uh, the bread shop, um, that was established in 1838, and that is still run by the Darvel family. Um, and we have got service records for some of those. If someone was in the Navy, the good news is all the records survive. We have them, they've all been digitised and they're searchable by name on our website. The bad news is they don't give you as much detail 
as the army ones. They give you, um, there's usually a single page. You will get details, a date of birth, which again may or may not be true, and a place of birth, uh, an occupation, details of tattoos and distinguishing marks if they've got them, which can be interesting, and a physical description, but you don't get any information about family. But you do get a, a, a survey, a rough outline of the man's career. Um, this particular one is an interesting one because he was um, invalided pulmonary tuberculosis. And this is something that you will see. I mentioned medical records. Men came back from the war damaged and wounded. An awful lot of them weren't discharged because of wounds. A lot of them were discharged because of sickness. If you're out in the trenches, up, in, up to your neck in muck and bullets, there are all sorts of horrible things that can happen to you as well as being shot at or getting shrapnel wounds. Uh, people got, you know, there were trench foot, people could get malaria, lots of um, pulmonary diseases. Towards the end of the war, a lot of men were caught up in the flu epidemic. So it wasn't just the bullets and the enemy that could kill you. Um, you could be, get seriously ill. People could uh, lose their hearing completely because of an explosion very close to them. So an awful lot of men came out of the army damaged. So the names that aren't on the war memorial, they survived, but they weren't always necessarily completely intact. And trying to find out what happened to them afterwards, that can be a bit more challenging. But I happened to look one of them up. He had a distinctive name. Um, and I found his, um, an entry for his will, and he died, I think, in about the 1950s, and his place of death um, was a mental hospital. And we do have a service record for him, and he plainly had come back damaged, he had shell shock. So whether he was in that institution for the whole time um, or not, we don't know. If somebody was really interested in researching that one person, you could probably find out. But that's the sort of thing that you might want to look at because these, record, these people didn't exist in their war service in isolation. They came back, and they came back different in many cases. Royal Marines, people often forget about the Royal Marines because it's a, a much smaller service. So the good news is the records are more detailed than the Navy. Not, not as detailed as the Army, but you do get more information. Um, you get the usual physical description, date and place of birth sort of things, you, but you do get often information about family, and in many cases, when the man died, even if it was many years after the war, you will sometimes find that noted on the service paper. Again, all indexed by name and all on our website. There were various other services. Those, those are the, the commanding heights of the, um, the, the Navy records, uh, but there were other naval services. Anybody who was in the Army, they were all in the Army, and all the records are in one place. With the Navy, there were also people who were in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, the Royal Naval Reserve, which wasn't voluntary. This was people who might be merchant seamen or people who had left the, the Navy, but they were still in the reserve to be called up, which many of them were in 1914. And there was also a thing called the Royal Naval Division, where people volunteered to join the Navy, but there weren't enough ships yet. You can recruit into the army on an infinite basis, just keep them coming. But the navy needs ships to put the sailors on. So the Royal Naval Division was a land-based fighting force, but it was part of the navy. 
and um, I, dis I discovered this in quite an interesting way. My own grandfather served <coughs> in the Royal Navy, and I thought it was a bit odd that he didn't seem to have joined up until 1917. In fact, he was originally in the Volunteer Reserve and then the Royal Naval Division, and then finally they put him on a ship in 1917. So he's a little one-man case study. So you might want to look at all of those. They're all on our website. They're all um, searchable by name. Um, so it's not just the Navy and the fighting forces. There are the reserve forces uh, in the, um, in the well, connected with the Navy that you might want to look at. There is also the Merchant Navy itself. That is very difficult to research, unfortunately. There was no central register of service until pretty much the tail end of the First World War. So you can find out about Merchant Navy, um, mainly through the medals. That's a good starting point, but it is quite difficult to research Merchant Navy. I'm sorry about that. I wish it were easier because I also have Merchant Navy ancestry. But I'm just warning you. Um, keep plugging away. You might find something. So I haven't found much um, for Chesham as yet. I've found certainly one person, but it's not, there isn't somewhere you can just go in and put in the place name and find people. So... I'll do what I can, but it may take some time. Then finally, this is the Royal Air Force. This didn't come into being until the 1st of April 1918. Previously, the, 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 the flyers had either been part of the Royal Flying Corps or the Royal Naval Air Service. And I am told by our senior military specialist, William Spencer, that all the men in the Royal Naval Air Service were volunteers. There were no conscripts in there. Um, the Royal Flying Corps was part of the Army, Naval Air Service part of the Navy, and the men who survived um, beyond the 1st of April 1918, they were all in the new Royal Air Force. And those records have very recently gone online. Now, those are not on our website. Those are on Find My Past. And you can search that. Um, you can't search it by birthplace or address, but you can search by county of birth. And the results give you occupations. So I searched for Buckinghamshire, and then I looked for very Chesham-y sort of occupations. Chesham is, is famous for um, boots, brushes, and Baptists. Lots of boot factories and lots of brush factories and, and small woodware, things like four candles, which I think is wonderful. Um, so I looked for people with likely-looking occupations, and I looked for names that I knew were... Um, families that were prominent in Chesham. So I'm sure there are more in there that I haven't found, but it was a reasonable start. And of course, that's birthplaces, not necessarily people who lived in Chesham. But if you're looking at a, a whole community, you probably want to at least consider people who were born in your town or village, even if they moved somewhere else and joined the services from somewhere else, because they, they still had a connection. So um, I, I found quite a number of people who were in the, the air services, which became the Royal Air Force. But I haven't yet come to the way I found out about most of them, and that is entirely to someone else's credit and not mine. That's all very well looking for the various um, service records and seeing what you can find out about the individuals. And you can amass quite a large number of names and begin to put um, extra information to them. A lot of the service records you hope, um, or the Commonwealth Wargroves, will give you an address. So you can start looking at the addresses. Now, the 1911 census, well, it's three and a half years before the start of the war, so the population won't be identical, but a lot of people are in the same place. 
and you'll see that the addresses on the 1911 census are exactly the same as the addresses on the attestation forms or on the, the, the record of the death on the Commonwealth war graves or, or some other source. Uh, and you're, most of you are probably quite familiar with the 1911 census. It's a wonderful census. It gives a lot more information than any previous census had done. You get details about fertility and marriage, I, how many children had been born of that marriage, how many um, are still alive and how many have died. And of course, with hindsight, we can look at these uh, and we can see some quite big families. This, this is not an, a particularly big family, but we can look at them and see um, this poor woman. She's had 10 children. She's lost two. And we know what's coming. She's going to lose another three because they're going to die in the war. Um, and you look at the addresses. And you know, the, that's an address that's just around the corner from where I live. Um, it certainly makes your walk to the shops quite different when you walk along and you think, that house got the telegram, that house got two telegrams, that house sent three sons to war. Um, it certainly makes you look at your town in a, in a different way. My house wasn't built until just after the war, but the house is directly opposite me. Uh, there's a run of them, uh, and from about the first, I think of the first six houses directly opposite me, from number two upwards, all but one of them sent sons to the war, and some of them came back. And uh, you know, when I look out my front windows, I look at those houses in a different way now. Um, you can imagine yourself back 100, nearly 100 years ago, and see what, what was it like in that street when uh, they must have dreaded the postman. That's the bit of the 1911 census that we're fairly familiar with. Um, when you're looking for a particular family, you get this wonderful household schedule, gives you all sorts of information. But the other part of, that you should also look at, particularly if you're interested in a whole locality, is the enumerator summary book. This lists um, all the addresses just with the names of the heads of households. So it's not the place to go looking for individuals. But if you're interested in the place, this is the only thing that will tell you about the buildings. If you've got somebody whose occupation is butcher or baker, this will tell you whether they are living in a house or whether they are literally living over the shop. It will also tell you about the buildings that aren't inhabited. And uh, one of the features of Chesham is it's very, very mixed residential and um, industrial. I, I live two doors away from a factory. This is quite ordinary. And particularly in the older part of the town, you will see there are lots of... Um, small workshops, wood workshops, and, and all kinds of things. And um, the, you know, the waterworks has to be somewhere, and so does the gas works. So this gives you a much better picture than just looking at the household schedules. Even if you're looking at a series of them, this tells you about the buildings. So now you can build up a picture of the place if you don't already know it. One of the really happy things about the 1911 census is that not only was it more detailed than any other census, but it happened to coincide with a most fantastic survey called the Valuation Office Survey. This was as a result of uh, Lloyd George's 1910 budget. And the idea was to tax people on their, um, wasn't a mansion tax, but the idea was that if your property increased in value purely because of rising market, you'd get taxed on the profits. If it increased in value because you'd done something to improve it, that was fine. It was the unearned bit that he was interested in. Now, as a tax, this never worked. But the survey that was taken is a fabulous resource. 
and it's based originally on the six-inch Ordnance Survey maps, which are incredibly detailed, and all the plots of land were identified on that, and then uh, there were the field books which list details about the various properties, including the names of the owners and occupiers. So you can see how putting this together with the 1911 census, you get a few discrepancies, but for the most part, you get the same people in the same places. So now you can really build up a picture and um, we've got the, the maps for most of the country. The maps for Chesham, I think, are particularly nice. Some of the maps I've looked at for other places are okay, fair to middling, and some of them are really pretty horrible and quite damaged. But the Chesham one is rather nice. Uh, lot, the plots are very clearly numbered and they're coloured in. I'm not entirely sure what the, what the colours are meant to represent, but it's an absolutely beautiful map. This is part of the, um, the, the new town which is the part of Chesham I live in. It's called the New Town because it's the Victorian bit. That's the sort of time scale um, that we have in Chesham. The, uh, the, the old town um, is a lot more crowded, but again, you can, you can um, identify individual buildings. This is the one bit of the town where there have been significant changes because um, although most of the streets that were there 100 years ago are still there, like most places... Um, a, the, a road has been built to um, take the traffic away from the centre. It has done less damage than a lot of road schemes. Um, anybody who's been to Watford uh, will know what I mean, and anybody who's been to Coventry or lived there, as I did for three years, um, will know that those places are virtually unrecognisable. Um, it's, of, it's a mixture. Sometimes it's a result of bombing in the Second World War. Sometimes it's, it's to do with a, a bit of dodgy town planning or a combination of both. But although um, Chesham has its relief road that, to take the traffic off the high street and cuts uh, through the old town a bit, it's done remarkably little damage compared to other places. So the place is still very recognisable. And you can identify um, particular houses... So what I aim to do, if I possibly can, when I've got my database into a slightly more workable format, is to try and plot on the map um, where the houses were that sent sons to the sons, husbands to the war, and the ones that didn't, that came back or didn't come back. That's quite a project, and I may take me some time to do that. But it's certainly something I would like to do, even if I can only do it for a, a little bit. And that's really is literally building up a picture. Now, I have mainly talked about records that you can find here. This is all very well, but I was originally asked to do this talk as a prelude to Explore Your Archives Week, which is encouraging people to look at resources in all kinds of archives. Now, when you do any kind of research, one of the first things you find out is that nobody's got everything on anything. Even though we are the main source for service records, we don't have absolutely all of them. And you will find lots of uh, supplementary material. That's uh, just a, a, a homed-in bit on the old town, a, a more detailed bit of the, uh, some of the, the streets there. And you can see there used to be a skating rink. That accounts for somebody having the occupation in the 1911 census of skating rink manager. That explains it all. And the sort of records that you might find elsewhere in local archives, in specialist archives, in um, regimental museums, they can give you a tremendous amount of information. Now, this, um, 
This is the register or, or the roll of honour for Wigston Grammar School for boys in Leicester. So not everything is about Chesham. I do recognise there are other places. This is a wonderful example. Now, Wigston Grammar School is a very old established school. This particular um, document was produced in 1916, so you're only halfway through the war. But they produced an incredibly detailed booklet. It listed every single current and former pupil who was serving, exactly what they were serving in, and many of them are annotated with little asterisks and indications that they've been wounded or killed or gassed. This goes on, it's about 16 pages of it, and it lists in great detail anyone, uh, current or uh, recent and, and you know, old boys who have uh, been killed, gives a little bit of extra information about them. It mentions masters who had joined up. It mentions people who had won gallantry awards, including a couple, I think, who'd got the Croix de Guerre. Um, so a tremendous amount of information, and this was something that was produced by the school. You will find a lot of these um, workplaces, schools, particularly the old, um, well-established the public schools and the old established grammar schools. They will often have records of this kind. But every school has records. And I used to call school records my, my um, sort of secret weapon. From 1871, when the, the Education Act, every maintained school had to keep certain particular kinds of records. And one of them was the admission and discharge register. And this records every single pupil who joins the school, gives their date of birth, their address, name of parent or guardian, sometimes both parents and sometimes the parent's occupation, the dates they attended the school, where they came from and where they went to. Now these are tremendous records. They're really good for sorting out families with common names um, in, in big heavily populated cities. I've, I've used them with some success to unravel Smith and Jones families in London. But in this particular case, you can look at school records, these admission and discharge records, which are mostly held in county record offices, to see sometimes what happened to the pupils. Now, a huge number of these have very recently been put online on Find My Past as part of a big national project. There are some for several counties, including Buckinghamshire. Regrettably, none of the Chesham schools is included in it, uh, although there is one from Ashley Green, which is very nearby. Now, they go up to 1914. So you might think that's a shame because there's nothing for the war years. But 1914 is the, um, the last date when pupils joined. So pupils who joined the school before 1914, but who left in the middle of um, the war, you may, if you're lucky, find a note that they joined this or that force. Um, the ones to look for would be the ones for um, grammar schools and senior schools. Most children went to elementary schools where you finished at 14 and for the most part did not go directly into the armed forces. Although um, I, I, do have, I did have a great uncle who joined up at 14 and took the army a few months to catch up with him and throw him out. For the most part, the elementary school registers are not going to be helpful. But if there are grammar school, senior school registers, um, neighbouring county, Hertfordshire, a lot of records on there. Watford Grammar School, lots of records on there. So you will find boys 
uh, who left left school and went into the army or one of the other forces, and that is often noted uh, on there in the admission and discharge register. The amount of detail that goes in kind of depends on what the school felt like putting in, but they are well worth exploring, and you might find all sorts of interesting um, information in there. I have an example. It's an untypical one in its format, but the information um, is fairly standard. This is extremely unusual because it's a whole page for a single pupil. But the amount of information that's on there, most of that information is usually conveyed in a single line. That school is um, Sir Joseph Williamson's mathematical school in Rochester. And although it's now, a, it's actually an academy now, it's a grammar school, but at the time it was a fee-paying school. But it still was required to keep all this information. And I, I picked this one. Um, there were lots I could have chosen, but I rather liked this one because the child was called Edward Bates and his father was called Edward Bates, 96 High Street, Chatham, uh, and he was a draper. Well, Bates in Chatham High Street, that's where my mother had to buy my school uniform. Um, so I rather like that. Uh, but it's not just me indulging myself with a bit of my own um, past. What it says on here is that when this boy left the school in 1917, he joined the Royal Flying Corps. So if you have a register like that, maybe not as pretty as that, but the same information on it, you may find a clue as to what happened to the boys. Some uh, school pupils, uh, boys in the, the grammar schools and technical schools, there was a special scheme where they could be exempted from military service if they were doing science and engineering subjects and they might be better uh, employed going into industry and uh, working in munitions. And the, the, we do have, actually have a file in, uh, in our records um, about this exemption scheme with a boy from... Watford Grammar School, um, which you, know, you can look him up on the, on the record. So lots of little pieces of information that you might find, and I do love school records. Now, there are the other thing that you might find school records very helpful for, and these are on the whole not going to be online, the ones during the war itself, you can see what the pupils are up to, and the school logbooks could be very interesting, de describing the day-to-day -day events in the school. School children were involved in the war effort, they were involved in schemes to collect, um, you know, gathering um, sort of nuts and berries from the hedgerows, particularly later in the war when food shortages were beginning to bite. They were also encouraged to recycle and collect waste paper. The schemes weren't always terribly efficient um, at actually producing a result, but, but they did get people involved. There was also a scheme to collect conkers, which were very useful for the war effort. Um, didn't always work out terribly well. That's the sort of thing you'll find out. So you can see what was happening back in a town, what the school children were doing. And the, um, uh, the other thing you might find in there is where if a town took in some Belgian refugees, which many places did, and certainly Chesham did, um, the children had to go to school. So the school records would show if there were Belgian children um, registered there. There, there's actually some um, records in the Cheshire Museum at the moment which uh, were donated by or, or borrowed from one of the Baptist churches. There are three Baptist churches in Cheshire, all different. Um, but one of the Baptist churches actually hosted uh, Belgian refugees and they have um, lent some of their records to the museum. You're not going to find that online. 
that's the sort of thing you only get with local knowledge. But it's the sort of thing to think about, see if you can find evidence that there were Belgian refugees, which they may well have been, particularly in the south of England. There are all kinds of other records. On our National Archives catalogue discovery, you can search not just our records, but records uh, in, that have been catalogued online by a number of archives all over the country. And you can select in the advanced search just to search records in other archives. And you can put in search terms. You can put in a place name and a couple of keywords just to see if there's anything interesting comes up. You will not find everything that's in the record office because not everything is catalogued to the nth degree, but it's a really good start. You won't find everything that way, but you will get some really good leads. And there are certainly quite a number of things I really need to go to Aylesbury uh, to look at. Um, for, the, for the, the county records for Buckinghamshire because um, there are some intriguing looking files. There is a file relating to an individual whose name I've now forgotten, but he was a schoolmaster. And what seems to have happened is that because this, the war broke out in August, a lot of people um, were on holiday and some people were out of the country. And he was actually stranded abroad uh, and uh, had to get... Um, make arrangements to get a passport to get himself back. It must have been all rather fraught. There is a file in Aylesbury that I really want to go and look at because I want to find out about him. So there are lots of things like that. Sometimes the little hit and hope creative searches can give you some clues. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and this is the fabulous uh, thing, on the, the site Buckinghamshire Remembers, which I mentioned, it wasn't just June and Peter Underwood's efforts, although magnificent though they are, they have now incorporated in their site a separate database created by a man called Clint Lawson. And his he has gone through lots and lots of local newspapers, picked out references to the men from Chesham. So you get them joining up, you get, uh, sometimes there are photographs. Um, he doesn't have the photographs there, but he tells you if there is one, so you know to go and look at the paper. Um, if they get mentioned sometimes that they've been killed or they've been gassed or they're missing in action or they've sent a letter home or there is some news of them, um, all sorts of things like that. And the paper, like many, had its own role of honour where some men appear on there. But the really brilliant thing that he did was he also went through the absent voters' registers. Now, 1918, that wasn't just when women got the vote. That was the first time that a lot of men got the vote. For the first time, all men over 21 got the vote. So many of these people were still in the forces. If you look at the discharge dates where you can find them, most people didn't really get out of the forces until 1919. So in 1918, they were absent voters. So if somebody lived long enough to at least get onto the electoral register, they are listed with their home address and which bit of the service they were in, and usually their precise unit and their number. So the many, many names that he found um, just from the absent voters list, and in some cases there is no other information, I've got those and I've incorporated them in. So that it was just a brilliant thing to do. I would not have thought of that. So um, I, could, I have never met him, but I am eternally thankful and I... Um, um, and I commend him highly for doing that. So that is a most tremendous um, source that you can use to really fill in the blanks. And by definition, it is almost all going to be people 
who survived the war and who are not um, the dead on the war memorial. Finally, we know you can't believe everything you read in the papers, but you really should look. I accidentally went on to the last slide. I'm not going to bother going back. The British newspaper archive is not the only game in town, but it is the most tremendous resource. Uh, it's adding, it's up to over 9 million pages at the moment. There are still lots more newspapers that aren't there, but it's a part of a very long project um, run in conjunction with the British Library, and you can search it by name. Searching newspapers by keywords, it's a bit hit and miss because it's all done by scanning and optical character recognition, so you do get some funny results, but it's a really good place to start rummaging about. You can browse through the papers as well. You identify a paper for your area, and there is one Buckinghamshire paper on there, at least, covering the war years. And don't just look for the individuals or for just for um, news about the war. It's very interesting if you just look maybe at a, a few volumes of a paper, a few inches of a paper during the war years, not just for the war stories. The facts might be you know, a little bit iffy, but they give you really good clues that you can then check in an official source. They get people's names and ages wrong, we know that. But it's good enough to get you to go and look somewhere else. The, um, when the war broke out, you get lots of comment and editorial, and for the most part, people are very supportive of the war. But then people start getting worried. Okay, men have gone off to fight. The, the, there's, nobody knows what's going on. And very, a lot of the factories were put on short time and nobody had any work. A few weeks later, it's all changed. If you remember what I said um, Chesham was famous for, <coughs> boots, among other things. What do armies need? Boots. So after a few weeks, the factories couldn't produce them fast enough. And the, I, I found at least one um, comment which said, well, do you want the men or do you want the boots? If you take the men for the army, there aren't any skilled men left to produce the boots. You choose. And the woodenware industry actually had a boost. I suppose the army must have needed things like shovels, but also we previously imported a lot of woodwares from Germany. Not really possible after 1914. So the good people of Chesham and their woodware factories could step in. So you find out what was going on. You also find just the normal stories um, there was a, a, a small fire and there was somebody who was visiting a uh, rather posh chap apparently and he was helping out and he bought the firefighters drinks afterwards turned out it was the home secretary who was staying nearby a little bit of local colour um, and you also get news from the front the sort of things that you'd expect so it's well worth looking at the papers but not just the local ones I did the sort of hit and hope search and I found a lot of information about Cheshire men in for example, West Country newspapers. Why was that? Because quite a number of Cheshire men were in the Gloucestershire Regiment. And the Gloucestershire Regiment, uh, the papers in their area, regularly produced lists of casualties, of wounded and missing and dead. And they gave the names and the places of residence of all these people. Now, most of them are West Country men. They're mostly from Gloucestershire or thereabouts. But where they were from somewhere else, i.e. Chesham, they listed them. So don't just think because, oh, my local paper isn't on there, there won't be anything interesting. You never know. You don't know till you look. So, and there are lots more things that um, I haven't thought of yet, and I'm sure you will. 
So do have a good old rummage in the newspapers, search them and browse them. But there's nothing quite like a local newspaper for giving you a picture of what was going on. The facts, as reported, people's names and ages, they aren't always reliable. But where it's somebody's opinion, somebody writing a letter, that's going to be genuine. That's exactly what they meant to say. So newspapers are just wonderful. And photographs, newspaper is often the only place you will find a photograph. Just about the time of the First World War, that's when newspapers started printing photographs. Photography had been around for a long time, but the technology to reproduce them in a newspaper was fairly new. So there is a lot in there. Sometimes they're quite fuzzy, but it may be the only photograph you'll get. So I can't commend too highly that you should look at local newspapers, whether it's going through a great big roll of microfilm in the local record office or looking online. And that, I've gone on far too long as I usually do. That was a, a fairly superficial account of the sort of things that you might want to do to do a local community history. But, and the records could be in all kinds of places, some of which I've suggested and some of which I haven't thought of, but you may well do. Putting it all together, there is a tremendous collaborative project uh, led by the Imperial War Museum um, called Lives of the First World War. And it's, they have put up online, first of all, um, records, you know, unique records from service records, metal cards and so forth. And they encourage you to go in and identify your soldier, whether it's a relative or somebody you just know about, and add in extra information. If you look on there, there's some tremendous stories already. And it's not just for individuals. You see one of the links on there is to communities. People are working on collaborative projects. It may be a local project for a town, or it may be an extended family, or it may be a workplace, or somebody who's just interested in people of a particular occupation. Anything you like. So that is a tremendous place to... Um, upload information that you found that you know would be very difficult for people to find otherwise and it's also um, a good place to do a collaborative project um, with other people that you find you share an interest with um, I haven't done anything like as much as I should have done on that but I have started, I put on my, old, my own grandfather to start with um, so don't do what I do do what I say so please uh, if you're researching a local community if you've got something that you think is worth sharing, that is a tremendous place to share it. So thank you very much for being so patient and listening. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.